So this morning, um, I'm going to try something I've never done before. I'm going to run the uh, PowerPoint while I'm preaching. So we're going to find out if Tom really can walk and chew gum at the same time. The likely answer is no, but we'll, we'll see how this goes. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you about um, Pentecost and the temple. And some of you might be going now, wait, what? Um, but just hang in there with me and you'll get it. And I think you'll, you're going to find this really worthwhile. So we're in this series about Pentecost. Um, because, not, not because we think it's, it's, it's a big deal historically, but because we think it's a, it has a, a major ramifications for us as God's people today. We need to understand Pentecost and uh, what that means for us. So that's a little bit of where we're headed today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, as we look into your word, as we hear what you might speak to us today, God, we ask that we would be open, that we would be um, willingly vulnerable before you, that we might be willing to, to listen to what you are saying to us, and God, that we would respond, that we would act on it, that we would, would take to heart the things that you want to implant in us and move forward in that, that which you want to do in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, we give you praise because you are faithful to do that. Amen. So, Pentecost in the temple. In order to really get this, we need to go back to the very beginning. How many times have we heard that in order to understand the Bible, you have to understand the book of, of Genesis, unless you're David, in which case you have to understand the book of Leviticus, but um, most of us have to understand the book of Genesis. And it's important to understand, so, so we go back to Genesis, it's important to understand that, um, that in the Garden of Eden, that was the place where God and man dwelt together, right? That was the Lord's original design, God and man dwelling together. And I think it's important for us to understand something else before we can understand the ramifications of that idea. And I've said this before, that heaven and earth are not so much about different locations as they are differences in nature, if you will. One is physical, the other one is spiritual. Um, it might be easiest to think of them as different dimensions that can overlap. Uh, they, they can occupy the same place at the same time because they're different dimensions. So when Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is coming among you, he wasn't talking about some physical place in outer space coming and being in our midst, all right? He was talking about heaven, that spiritual dimension coming and being in our midst, the, the spiritual realm invading the physical. He's talking about the presence of God coming near to his people. When We, we actually sing that idea sometimes here on Sunday morning. One of the, the songs that we, we sing on a regular basis, it says, here in your presence, heaven and earth become one. That's the idea. That it's, it's coming in together. And, and when God's presence comes into heaven, can I say human territory? It changes things, all right? So, so heaven and earth coming together, the spiritual and the physical coming together, that's the picture that we get in the Garden of Eden, God's presence dwelling in the midst of people. Um, so we could say in that setting, in the Garden of Eden, that, that the, the spiritual was kind of overlapping with the physical, uh, heaven and earth came together. But then let's fast forward just a little bit right there and recognize that once mankind fell into sin, that was no longer the normal, right? God's presence was no longer as evident 
uh, later on after sin as it had been. Now, I'll come back to that idea in just a little bit here, but let me say that if you really want to, if you really study um, the Garden of Eden in Scripture, you, you quickly realize that there are some, some temple parallels uh, that, that um, really, I think, are obvious. I'm, I'm assuming that my, the, uh, the PowerPoint is not working. Okay, good. That's great. Um, Lo- love those little, yeah, it was, work- it was working earlier, you guys, all right? So, yeah, it was, yeah, we actually tried it out, and I got the little clicker right here to make it work, and yeah, okay, here we go. Um, so, so just, sorry, just like the, the, the temple was the place where God's presence came into the midst of the people, in the same way God's presence was there in, uh, in the Garden of Eden. A man named G.K. Beale said this, the same Hebrew verbal form, hithpael, used for God's walking back and forth in the garden in Genesis 3.8, uh, also describes God's presence in the tabernacle in several different passages. I just find that fascinating, that, that God's presence, the same kind of thing, was happening in, in the Garden of Eden as it was in the temple. Um, I've got this really cool slide that shows a, a parallel between the, the Garden of Eden and the temple, and we could just, just imagine that it's... Never mind. Um, so, so, God, so God created Adam and Eve, and he planted, according to Genesis 2.8, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man. Now, we know that God's original intent with Adam and Eve um, was that as they can we say matured? He, he, was, he was teaching them. He was training them. He was getting them ready for more there in the garden. So as they reached a, a level of maturity, that they would go out from the garden and take the, the essence of the garden with them. God's very first command to Adam and Eve, Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God didn't plan for them just to stay right there in the garden the whole time. You with me? They would eventually venture out beyond the the, the, the walls beyond the, the boundaries of that garden into the whole world. So if you think about it, ultimately, really, their... Lo- oh! be, be still my heart. Okay, all right. Well, <clears throat> pay attention. Okay, yeah, all right. <clears throat> so if you think about it, really, their, their, their ultimate goal was to... Or their ultimate role was to, uh, with God empowering them, go out into the whole world and and take the essence of the garden with them. Um, They were to subdue the whole earth. So they were to to fill the whole world with God's presence, his goodness, his life, all right? That was the hope, that was the plan. But we know from Genesis 3 that that's not what really happened. Instead, they rebelled and were consequently booted out of the garden. Now, if you look at any paintings of that scene, um, I've got a few there on the screen, different cultures, different styles. Now, all right, I know, you know, there wasn't anybody here that was actually there. We have no photographs, all right, so these are just artists rendering ideas, okay? But if you understand that they had just been booted out of God's presence, then it makes sense that in every one of these and lots of other ones that you can look at, that they always look sad. I mean, think about it. They had had... They had walked with God. They had talked with him. He was their creator, their father. And now his presence is just a memory. They've been banished from that. I got to think that's a sad day, all right? Now, here's the deal. There are a lot of theologians that will tell you that this being cast out of the garden, out of God's presence, wasn't 
as much punishment as it was an act of mercy. Steve actually alluded to this last week. Um, Think about it. God created man to live forever. That was the original design, okay? But when, when man rebelled, God didn't want him to live in eternal rebellion. He didn't want that for man. I mean, he could have. He, he could have said, okay, you made the choice. You get to live with it now. But instead, he gave them, he gave them a, a scenario that, that created an opportunity for them to repent. I think of, of David in the Old Testament when he sinned with Bathsheba. And, and David says, talking to God, your hand was heavy upon me. Anybody here ever had that sense of God's um, hand heavy upon you, of him pushing you toward repentance after you? nobody here has ever sinned, right? So, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so that's, that's the thing that's happening here in the Garden of Eden. Um, so, so this is not so much um, God saying, hey, you, you've offended me, I'm sending you out into the yucky part of the world, you're on your own now, you know, g- good luck. No, no, this, this is not so much a punishment um, as it is a scenario that God is allowing them the opportunity to turn around. They, there they are, they, they, hadn't, they didn't experience God's presence any longer. And you can see that this idea of, of sin Pushing us away from God's presence is a, uh, is a pretty common thing in Scripture. Uh, we're almost there. Um, that's what I wanted to do. Sorry. Let me just give you a couple of examples of, the, of that, that whole idea of sin pushing us away. Think of the guy in, uh, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 that uh, he, he, he needed to, he was unrepentant there in the Corinthian church, right? And he needed to be cast out until he was ready to repent. Um, that's not so much a, a punishment as it is, because, uh, as it is a, an opportunity for him to turn because God doesn't want anybody to go to hell, right? He wants us to repent, and so he offers that. See, it's dangerous. Think about this. It's dangerous for those who are not holy, for those who are unrepentant, to be in the presence of God. And so for that guy to be there in the gathered church where they are, where they're worshiping, where they're receiving communion, where, where they're in the presence of God, it's a dangerous thing. And so Paul says, hey, you need to, to push him out for the time being to allow him that opportunity to repent. God won't allow people who are unrepentant to be in his presence. I think of, of, of Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament. Remember them, priests that God had called. They were the sons of of Aaron, um, Moses' brother, all right? So these guys are like some of the almost original priests right there, and what, remember what they did. They kind of, they, they should have been doing the work of the priesthood the way that God had described it, but instead they decided to take matters into their own hands, to do things their own way. Um, and some people have suggested that it was because they were drinking. We don't know for sure, maybe, maybe not, but regardless, they offered what the Bible refers to as strange fire, and if you remember what happened, they themselves became the burnt offerings at that point. Um, these guys were specifically named by God to be priests, but they decided to approach God in their own way, not in the way that he said. And God said, nope, not going to happen. You can't just come any way that you want to. This is the, the thing Steve said last week. He talked about death by holiness. What a great 
phrase, death by holiness, getting too close to the holiness of God in an unholy state is not a good thing for us. And that's what happened with Nadab and Abihu. Think of the Israelites when they gathered at the, the base of Mount Sinai. And God told Moses to tell the people that he was going to come down, he's going to visit them, but tell them, don't get too close, because if they do, they're going to die. Death by holiness. You get too close in an unholy state, it's not going to be a good thing. Think of the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple. Only one person was allowed to go in there because that's where the presence of God was. What ha would happen if anybody else went in there? They're going to die. So there's lots of examples of this. One that, that Steve mentioned last week, um, and I, I hesitate a little to bring this up because uh, th there's some ramifications for us, but, but if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. Um, Think about the, the scripture that we often read right before we take communion together as a congregation um, from 1 Corinthians 11. It's talking about not discerning the, the body of the Lord. And then it says, uh, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Some have died. Again, I want to emphasize that, that we, uh, we believe that communion is more than just symbolic. We believe we're receiving something of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ um, as we're receiving those elements. So if someone dies as a result of that, that sounds like death by holiness to me. They, Steve said this last week. He said, they came into the presence of God without right hearts. And I think that's accurate. People who are not holy, who are not walking in repentance, cannot safely come into the presence of God. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm hoping I'm scaring you at least a little bit. So all of that to say that the idea of, of Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden was was really to protect them, was really an act of love. It was to protect them from God's holiness. And it's, it also gives them then the opportunity to, to turn around, to come back to God, to come back to him into his presence again. See, if you read through the Bible, God's holiness is sometimes uh, compared with a consuming fire. So the way that it should work since mankind's fallen to sin, is like putting iron into a furnace where the fire is. And what happens is it heats up and it burns away the, the impurities, the dross, right? And, and that's the way it's supposed to work. And, and for us, what that means is that God's turning up that heat. We've all experienced it. And we repent and the dross, the, the bad stuff goes away. And we then actually are able to approach God on a higher plane, more pure, more holy in that, that regard. Does that make sense? Okay, but there's, a, there's another possibility that can happen in that scenario, and that is that when the iron is put into that furnace, that it's just left there. And at that point, everything gets burned up. See, that's what happens when people don't repent. So if you think about it, that's why there was a, a cherub with the flaming sword posted at the, the entrance to the garden, it wasn't to keep mankind from going in and defiling the garden. No, it was to protect man from going into the presence of God where he's going to die. God's presence was there. So all of that to say that God's presence is not a thing that should be taken lightly. But there's a parallel thought to all of this that we need to understand. See, as people, we have been made in the image of God. 
And therefore, there seems to be this, this innate desire on the inside of us to be near God, to be in his presence, to be close to him. Some of you might rem- be old enough to remember the, uh, the, the four spiritual laws witnessing tract from really popular back in the, the 70s and 80s especially. Um, and in there, one, one of the things, it talks about how there's a God-shaped hole on the inside of every one of us. And I think that's an accurate depiction because there's something uh, on the inside of us that desires to be close to God, that desires to be near him, desires to be in his presence. We were designed that way. But the reality is that, you know, if you look at history, people seem to try to try to fulfill that in all the wrong ways. So think back. I just read this recently. I thought it was fascinating. The, the, Tower, of ba- uh, the Tower of Babel, um, the, the Babylonian word bavili, which was used to describe that tower in, in secular writings, literally means the gate of God or the gate of the gods. So, so what they were doing is they were trying to get back into the Garden of Eden. They were trying to get back close to God. They were trying to come near to his presence, but in the wrong way. And it didn't work. So, so there's this desire in us to be in God's presence. And if you've tracked with me so far, then you understand that when there is sin among the people, then there's one of two things that's going to happen. Either God is going to, in the, the terminology that's sometimes used in the Old Testament, God is going to break out in the camp and people are going to die. If there's wickedness, if there's impurity, then Something's going to happen. The other option, the other possibility in that whole thing is that um, God's going to leave or God's going to push the people away so they don't, they're not in his presence. So, so two options. Either he stays and that impurity gets burned up or he departs. Now, the reality is that as people, we don't want either of those options. We don't want to die. And, and, and we don't want to be, live apart from God. So think about this. God, in the Old Testament, he gave people the law, all the do, do's and don'ts, if you will. So he gave them the law so that they would know how they should act in the midst of a God dwelling in their presence. You following me there? So they knew what was the right thing to do and, and, and how it should work. Certain things they should do, certain things they, they shouldn't do. So, so the Old Testament law was basically given to, to keep either of those two scenarios, them, getting, them dying or, or God departing from them, from happening. And you know, as I look at that, the feel that I get from it is that the closer you get to the presence of God, the more you have to know and understand and walk in. So for example, God gave the law to the people of Israel, his people, okay? But he didn't tell them that they needed to tell the other countries around them, you know, pick whoever, the Philistines, the Babylonians, whoever. He didn't tell the Israelites that they needed to tell those guys that they shouldn't be coveting their neighbor's stuff. No, it was only for the Israelites because they were God's people where God was dwelling, okay? But take it up a notch, think about the priests in Israel, those who ministered at the temple, at the tabernacle, they had to, they had to, to go through certain uh, rituals, certain things that they had to do that were different than the average person because they were closer to the presence of God. And then there's the, the high priest 
who gets to go into the actual presence of God once a year, he's got to be even more holy. So again, let me, let me just make this clear. The reason that the law was given was not so that you could check off things on your scorecard. Hey, I kept all the commandments today. Sweet. No, it was because God's presence is dangerous. His holiness is a consuming fire. So if you want to be near him, you have to be holy. So, I want to clarify, I want to bring into focus, I built this case that the presence of God is a big deal. It's a really big deal, okay? And it's something we were, we were designed to experience, think of the garden, something we were designed to live in, but it's not to be trifled with. So, at the tabernacle um, in the wilderness, and then later on at, at Solomon's temple, we see the the presence of God being restored, at least in some measure. And let me just, just as an aside here, the, the temple was not God's idea. He agreed to it, but it wasn't his idea. How many times do we read in the Bible that God does not dwell in temples made with human hands, right? So the temple wasn't his idea. He agreed to it, but, uh, but, but it wasn't his idea. So think about the, the prayer that, um, that Solomon prayed at the dedication of his temple. Pretty lengthy prayer. And there's some, some beginning stuff and some ending, but several times in that prayer, he says, if this happens and we come here and pray to you, hear us and answer. If this happens, it's, you know, different scenarios. Over and over that happens. Now, some of you aren't going to like me saying this, but I get the impression as I read that prayer, and especially those sections of that prayer, that the essence of what Solomon is saying is we want to know where God is, where his presence is, so we can come there and get what we want from him. Ooh, never thought about it like that before. I might be wrong, all right, but read it for yourself. Over and over, he says, if this happens and we come here and pray hear us, I just have this inclination that it just borders a little bit too much on that. Again, maybe I'm wrong. So the temple was built, not God's idea, um, but what happened at the dedication of the the temple? God's presence filled it. It was this amazing thing. The the fire came down, the cloud is there, all of the people are on their faces, the the, the priests couldn't even couldn't even stand up, the heavy presence of God, if you will. It was an amazing event. So, so follow me here. Sometime later, the temple is destroyed, right? And later it was rebuilt, and then it was, much later, it was totally revamped and rebuilt. So the, the rebuilding was after the Babylonian exile. You guys all remember uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, that whole thing, rebuilding of the temple. And then the, the, the total revamp is what we would uh, think of in the New Testament as Herod's temple. Um, Herod, I was going to say he wanted people to like him. Maybe he wanted people to hate him less. I don't know. Um, but uh, he built this huge, huge temple. And it was actually started, it was begun between the Testaments. And apparently, according to history, it was finished when Jesus would have been just a boy. So it's relatively new there in the New Testament, which explains why, you remember the one part in the Gospels where the, one of his disciples is going, look at these giant stones, and the, he probably never saw it before. So there's this 
big building, okay? But I find it interesting that we don't read anything at the rededication of the original temple or at, at Herod's temple. We don't read anything about the presence of God coming. I, I want you to think about this because, you know, I've got a vivid imagination, but when I read that, that scene of Solomon's temple being dedicated and the presence of God coming, I am never, if I'm there, I am never going to forget this for the rest of my life. This is, this is that generation's Red Sea moment. I mean, can you imagine being at the Red Sea and the sea opening and them walking through on dry ground and then turning and watching as Pharaoh's army is completely decimated? They're going to tell their children, they're going to tell their grandchildren, they're going to tell their great-grandchildren, and they are going to tell it so well, so vividly, that this is going to go on for generations. Nobody's going to forget this event. This is the same kind of thing right here. When that happened at the temple and the fire came down and the cloud and everybody there is on their face, this is not something they're going to forget anytime soon. So I have to think that if anything anywhere close to that happened at either the rededication or the revamp, that we'd hear about it. But there's nothing. Absolutely nothing in history, in the Bible. Nothing about it at all. So fast forward to the New Testament. Remember the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24. Chapter starts off with the, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died and now he's back to life. He has been raised from the dead. And then, does anybody remember the very next thing that happens in that last chapter of Luke right after the, the resurrection? Anybody? It's the, the story of the two, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, we don't get it because we don't have the same historic perspective as the people back then had. But see, Emmaus in that time frame was known for this huge victory that Israel had won over the Seleucids. The Seleucids were this big empire that had ruled over them and lots of other nations right there in that area between the Testaments. And at Emmaus, Israel won this big decisive victory over the Seleucids. So back then, if somebody said Emmaus, that would have been in our minds like somebody saying Gettysburg. Oh, I know what happened there. Are you with me? So, so his disciples, the, the, the two disciples, right? They're on their way to Emmaus. And in people's minds, as they're reading this, they would be going to that place where that big victory happened, Right? And how would we today, how would we, or even back then, how would we describe those two disciples? We would say that they were defeated, that they were sad, that they were beaten, they were dejected. Everything they had hoped for was gone. And what happened? Jesus came into their midst and explained and showed himself to them, declaring that he had won this decisive victory over sin, over the enemy, over the grave. 
There's just so much in Scripture that we don't understand. And as I study and look at, I am just so in awe of the God who has woven this incredible story. And by story, I'm not talking about fiction. I'm talking about a true story. It is amazing. So then at the very end of that chapter, chapter 24 of Luke, they were continually in the temple blessing God. Talk about his disciples, all right? They're continually in the temple blessing God. So they're not just... They're not just popping by occasionally, all right? They're continually in the temple. And that means they have to be there on a pretty frequent, pretty regular basis, if, if, if Luke is correct in saying this, right? So keep that in mind. Now, you and I both know that Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke, is the first of two volumes. What's the second one? Acts, okay. He wrote both of them, okay? So we would expect that the story's going to pick up in the second volume where it leaves off. You know, when when Barb and I watch a movie, she is always thinking ahead, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Most of the time she's right. I'm pretty impressed, actually. Um, But so that's what I'm doing here. If I've just finished reading Luke, now I'm thinking, all right, where is this going to go? And see, I'm thinking, all right, we just heard about the resurrection victory. We just heard about Jesus declaring himself to be this this victor who has won this, this battle, and we hear that the, the disciples are continually in the temple. I think something's going to happen in the temple. I think it has to. Maybe, maybe the presence of God is going to come again like, like in, in the former days. Maybe something. I don't know, but it seems like that's what should happen. Now, Acts starts off with um, kind of a recap of the ascension. Uh, if you... Um, If you think about it, it makes sense because he's kind of bringing us up to speed. All right, in case you forgot, here's where we're at, the ascension. Okay, and then they they replace Judas. It's it's something they had to do in order to fulfill Scripture. It's very clear there that that has to happen. But then um, what's the next thing that happens? Pentecost. They all get filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this mighty rushing wind, and there are tongues of fire. And I think it's interesting that Luke describes this scene as divided tongues of fire. Divided tongues of fire. Now, forgive me, I I have this fascination with words. I'm always, why that word choice? Every word-for-word translation, I looked at over a dozen different translations just to verify this. Every single one of them says either divided tongues of fire or separated tongues of fire. Why? So, years ago, I saw an animated uh, version of Pentecost. And what happens is this, and, and, all right, this is only somebody's imagination, okay? But this big fireball is coming down. And when it reaches the place where the disciples are, it divides, it separates. I think this whole thing sounds a whole lot like the dedication of Solomon's temple. This fire comes. It's on a more personal scale. They're they're the divided tongues of fire, right? But it's the same scene being replayed and it's precisely the same thing because they are now the temple. It's not just a building, it's the people. Think about this. The prophet Haggai talking about the temple He said this, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Now, I got to think, 
that when the people, when the priests, the, the religious leaders, heard Haggai prophesy that, they must have thought, wait, what? At the former temple, the, the glory that happened, the, the fire, the cloud, the people on their faces, the, the priests not able to stand. This is significant. This is major. And you're saying that the latter house is going to be greater than that? Haggai, you missed it this time, buddy. That's just a foolish statement. That's, that's just crazy talk. But see, you and I know that it's true because the latter glory is greater and you and I are a part of it. God's presence wasn't just filling a building. It was filling people. We are the new temple. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We didn't just get a pyrotechnic show. We got the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. God himself. Now I could wrap this up right now, but I want to, before I do that, I want to take you on a little side journey because I think it's important for us to understand this, and then we're going to come back to the main track. There are, there are people today who would say that our worship today is much like the worship at the temple. But I would beg to differ, and let me explain. Let's say that our building here is the, tab or the, the temple from the Old Testament, or the tabernacle, either one, okay? All right, so I know there's some pretty... Serious architectural and size differences, okay? So bear with me, all right? Just kind of hang in here. If you, and, and let's say that you are an adult male Israelite pilgrim who's coming for one of the, the festivals, you would, you would, let's say, you'd come in the door down there at the end. And I want you to imagine that that whole section before the lobby, that whole section down there is, is all open. So there's no, there's no nursery, there's no restrooms, there's no offices, nothing. That's just all one big area, Okay. It would actually be much larger than that and not have a roof, but hang in there, okay? So you go in there and you bring your animal that you've brought for the, the sacrifice, or if you didn't, weren't able to bring one, you would have bought one out in the parking lot. You bring it in and you present that animal to the priest. And the priest would then take your animal over on the side. He would kill the animal. He would um, skin it. He would, uh, would uh, cut it up the way that the law had prescribed for him to do it. And then he would take the, 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 the part that was supposed to be given to God over on the side, and he would, um, we'll just say there's a big fire pit there, and he would burn it up, and then he would come back, and he would give you your pieces of meat that you're now going to take and um, share and eat with your family, all right? You, um, you would not go into the lobby area. That would be the holy place. Only the priests were allowed in there. And you couldn't even see in here. This would be the holy of holies. You couldn't even see that part, Okay? And, 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 and I'm only describing the adult male. If you were a woman or a child, you're still out in the parking lot. You didn't even get to come in there. So, so you would be, if you understand the concept, you would be near, you would be near the presence of God. You'd be in the vicinity of the presence of God, but you don't actually get to go into his presence. And that would be it. Once that transaction is done, you go, you leave. Your, your worship, if you will, is over. That would have been, if I can put it this way, pre-Christian worship. 
See, I think in order to understand our situation better, I think we need to realize just how, can I say, shut out people were from the presence of God. Since the fall in the garden, the presence of God, except for a very few rare occasions, was distant. And if we understand that, then maybe we'll understand a little bit better the reality of what we have now as the church. You and I are not on the, on the outside looking in. No, we actually carry the presence of God with us wherever we go. We, you and I don't need to worry about death by holiness. Why not? Because we've been made holy by the blood of Christ. We have a right to be in His presence. We can come, come near without any fear or trepidation, no pretense. We belong in His presence. Are you with me? Now, don't get cocky about that because it's only because of what he's done. It's not anything we've done. Only because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can come at all. But we can come because we've been adopted into his family. So what does this mean practically for us? Pentecost takes us back to the original design where God and man were dwelling together. You with me? If I can say it this way, the cross gives us access Pentecost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, makes it relational and experiential. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We are temples of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, We are the temple of the living God. Last week, uh, uh, Steve said Jesus came to make us holy temples for the Holy Spirit to dwell in, to restore God's Eden dwelling with humans. I think he's right. Jesus did that, but he did more. See, it's not just, it's not just you and me individually. Oh, oh it is. It, 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 that's part of it. We are each a, a temple in our own right. But more so, we are together collectively the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, we don't, unfortunately, in our modern English translations, we don't differentiate between uh, singular and plural you. So when we read that, those verses, we don't know, is this, is this talking about one person? Is it talking about all of us? So um, I pulled up Young's literal translation, which is, is word for word. So sometimes the phrasing is awkward, but it gives us a little better understanding of the actual words without delving into the, the, the original languages. And it says, that, I don't have a slide for it, but just leave that one there. Um, it says this, have ye, talk about plural, have ye not known that ye are a sanctuary of God and the Spirit of God doth dwell in you? And there's even some, uh, some uh, discrepancy about whether or not that one should be plural there. Um, if anyone, the san- this gets a little confusing. If anyone, the sanctuary of God doth waste, him shall God waste, for the sanctuary of God is holy, the which ye are. God's temple is holy and you, you plural, are that temple. We together are the temple. You know, I find it, I find it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, Luke says they were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. Uh, Again, sorry, words fascinate me. Um, I know that today, you and I, because of tools like Zoom and Skype, we can be all together and not in one place, right? But back then, that wasn't an option. The only possibility is if you were together, you were in one place. If you were in one place, you were together. So to me, the, the phrasing there seems redundantly repetitive. 
unless, unless Luke was trying to make a point, unless he was trying to emphasize the together aspect of what he was saying, I think he wanted his readers to recognize that not only was there an individual aspect to the temple, yes, there were divided tongues of fire, okay, but there's also a corporate aspect. They were all together. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All together. Some of you have heard me talk in the past about uh, how the Holy Spirit got lost on the original day of Pentecost. All right, he probably didn't, but it's a great illustration. Up until the day of Pentecost, God always chose to manifest himself in a particular place. It was in the Garden of Eden. It was on the Holy Mountain. It was in the Holy of Holies. It was always in a particular place. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's on his way to the temple takes a wrong turn, gets lost, ends up in the upper room, fills everybody there. And from that point on, the Bible never talks about a holy place. It talks about holy people. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. We are the holy temple of God. His presence is made manifest through us. His kingdom comes through us, through you and me. So go back to the Go back to the role that God gave man at the very beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the earth. That, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to keep your lawn mowed. Okay, you probably should keep your lawn mowed, but it's way more than that. It means bringing God's love and truth and justice and compassion and power into the world around us. It means that wherever you are, God is there too because you're a part of his temple. And his power, his love is made manifest through you. God chose you to be a living stone in that temple. That is amazing to me. A friend of mine years ago used to say that we are, as Christians, we are carriers and couriers of the presence of God. Think about that. What does it mean to be a carrier? You know, if you use that in the, in the medical field, what does that mean? You, we all know, right? You're going to infect, if you've got the virus, you're going to infect, or you can infect somebody else. You're a carrier, right? That, that's us. We've got the Holy Spirit. We should be infecting other people. We're couriers. What does a courier do? He makes deliveries, right? We should be delivering the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. You and I are that temple. We're carriers. We're couriers. All right, so right now I'm just going to ask you to do something I don't often do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head because I want you to, to think about this. I'm going to ask you a question. I just want you to prayerfully ponder what difference should recognizing what you just heard, what difference should it make in your life today, tomorrow, the next day.
Lord, we're amazed that you have reached out in love and drawn us to yourself. That we who were dead in our sins have been made alive and that you have made us holy and so therefore we can come before you and know a holy God. And not only that, but you have, have placed part of you inside of us that we get to be part of that temple and that we get to, to know you intimately and to share that with others. God, thank you. What an incredible privilege. And so, so Father, we ask that you would show us what difference this should make for us in our daily lives. How we can be indeed those, those carriers and those, those couriers of your presence and take your, your life, your love, your compassion, your power into the world around us that it might be changed, that, that heaven might come to earth as a result of what you do in and through us. Lord, show us day by day how to do that more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.